Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Something that a lot of people have been doing over the last, I would say, oh, four years is subscribing to health insurance coverage. It's been like a national trend. You know, sometimes you'll read a story in the newspaper about a trend, and it's a trend because three friends of the reporter did a thing. Three friends of the reporter are using fax machines again. Three friends of the reporter are making art with uh, Silly Putty and newspapers. But a really big national trend is when 20 million people signed up for health insurance coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act. That qualifies as a national, I would say that's a national sensation. It is one of the great victories of the Obama era. And there's nothing that drives Republicans more crazy than millions of people getting health insurance. Which is why today, after seven years of promising an Affordable Care Act replacement, they came out with a huge, heaping, steaming, fetid pile of rotting garbage, which they call the American Health Care Act. So it's not a great plan. I would say on a scale of zero to great, it is uh, about negative a million. Okay, fair. The first thing to understand is that this is not a healthcare plan. This is a tax cut for rich people. The core reason why they're doing this is that the Affordable Care Act was paid for by a number of small taxes on people who make more than $200,000 a year. And the Republican, I don't want to call it a health, I'm just going to call it the Make America Sick Again Act. The Make America it's not a health care plan. It's not a health care plan. The Make America Sick Again Act starts by ripping away all the, those taxes by handing this giant tax cut to people who make more than $200,000 a year, $215,000 for a couple. And just to put this in perspective, for the 400 richest Americans, they get $7 million a year each. $7 million a year each for the 400 richest Americans. I know. Now... I'm not sure whether Donald Trump is actually in the 400 richest a year, uh, 400 richest Americans, because he won't release his tax returns and he lies constantly. But there's no question that some of his friends are in those 400 richest Americans, and they will be walking away with these giant satchels of money. They will be hamburglaring their way out of the treasury with their giant tax cuts yeah. as people get sick. Now, what do you get uh, in exchange for those giant tax cuts? The first thing you do is you drastically reduce the amount of support people get to pay for their health insurance coverage. So right now, under Obamacare, there's a lot of talk about rising premiums. And it's true, premiums are rising, and it's a problem. And it could be corrected with something like, say, Medicare for All, or just more support for for premium subsidies, or, or a number of things you could do. But there's a lot of talk about these premium increases, and not a lot of talk about the fact that 80% of people who buy health insurance coverage under Obamacare, they get subsidies that pay for most of their premiums. Again, four out of five people who buy their health insurance under Obamacare in the individual health insurance market, they get subsidies that help cover the cost. So like in North Carolina last year, for example, the average subsidy was $4,800. 
which covers a lot of the cost. Most yeah. people, most people, it's like three quarters of the cost of their health insurance premiums come from these subsidies. The Republican plan would just go in like Wolverine tearing into some kind of evil super mutant villain, just ripping out chunks of flesh from these subsidies. There's blood on the floor because what Republicans want to do is just eviscerate, just shred and gut the subsidies that help poor and middle-class people get health insurance coverage under Obamacare. This is why I think the Affordable Care Act is such a powerful uh, uh, piece of legislation right? that Barack Obama did. Because, like it or not, there are a lot of Trump supporters, Republicans, you know, whatever, who are benefiting from this, right? They just are. And you know as well as I do, one of the deadliest things that you could possibly do as a politician is to take someone's benefits away from them. Take something away from them that they have been relying on for some time now. And that's exactly what this does. They're going to go in and they're going to rip away benefits from people who have grown accustomed to having them. That is never, ever, ever, ever going to be a winning argument. And like all the other stuff aside, right, like all the other changes and plans and things that they've been working on, all that aside, just on a base level, you're going in and you will be taking something away from people who have been using this for a while, that you're screwed. That's absolutely right. I mean, this is a political stink bomb. Yeah. This is a total political loser. This yeah. is a political disaster. Because for all the things, you know, all the complaints that people have had about Obamacare, 100% of them have been, it's not liberal enough. Right. It's been, there's not enough subsidies. Right. You know what I mean? It's that there's not enough things that are covered. It's that the out-of-pocket costs are too high. It's that not everyone has coverage. All of those things are arguments to move left, to have a more generous system. And everything the Republican plan does is move to the right. Yeah. Now, I will nuance that. I will say that there is a tiny wrinkle of an exception to that, which is that the Republican plan, it basically shifts it away from saying you get your subsidies based on how much money you make and makes it you get subsidies based on how old you are. So if you are young and healthy, actually, you get a little bit more, uh, you get a little bit more money for your subsidies. Mm -hmm. There is a small group of people, including, you know, a bunch of friends, people like me, that might benefit a tiny bit from this. Sure. There is a problem with that, though, which is that that only works if the health insurance market doesn't enter a death spiral. <laughs> right. And this guarantees right. that the individual healthcare market will enter a death spiral. So I want to I speak to that death spiral. Here's how health insurance works. A whole bunch of people pay in, and then some of the people get a bunch of health coverage, which is paid for by the premiums from all those lots of people. That's it's called insurance. That's the basic idea of insurance, right? It's that it's not like, you know, buying pancakes on non-pancake days where you pay money and you get this certain number of pancakes. Health insurance is like a lottery. It's like a reverse lottery. Everyone puts in money and some people really need the care. Mm -hmm. And you don't know whether you're going to be the person in the car accident, although more likely that you are now that the Trump administration is taking away all the protections of yeah. consumer products. That's fair. But you don't know if you're going to be the one in the car accident. So you want insurance just in case. What the Republican plan does, the first thing it does is it eliminates the penalties for not buying health insurance. In other words, it says, you don't have to buy health insurance. So a lot of people won't buy health insurance. Of course not. Then it says, if you lapse in your health insurance coverage, you'll have to pay, you'll potentially be charged 30% more when you buy health insurance again. So in other words, if you, if you decide, I'm so healthy, I don't need health insurance, then what happens is the cost of buying health insurance again goes up. 
I'm uh, hardly a doctor here, but that <laughs> that sounds like a trap. Yeah, it is a it is oh, it's. So I mean that is that is just like a like a trap waiting to be sprung on on very vulnerable people. It's bit, it's kind of it's kind of like a one of those mortgages with a ballooning interest rate. You yeah. know what I mean? Where yeah, it's yeah. like you don't pay it, and then suddenly or you you're, you're paying, you're paying, and suddenly. The cost explodes. Like what the Republicans say is that by having uh, a, basically, in effect, a penalty for letting your coverage lapse, that'll encourage people to stay on coverage. But the reality is, if there's no penalty for not having coverage, and then it costs even more to get coverage, you just won't get it if you don't think you need right. it. And the more young and healthy people don't buy health insurance coverage, despite the slightly higher subsidies the Republicans are offering. The more people don't buy health insurance coverage, the more only the sick people who definitely need it will stay in the market, which means that the underlying premium is going to go up and up. Yeah. And under Obamacare, if, if premiums went way high, the subsidies would grow with them because Obamacare said nobody should spend more than a certain fraction of their income on health insurance. Republicans get rid of that completely. They get rid of the cap on how much of your money you can spend on health insurance. So Republicans, the maximum possible subsidy is $4,000 a year. Now, remember, in North Carolina... The average subsidy was four thousand eight hundred. Yeah. So they are cutting it. No matter how sick you are, no matter how old you are, you cannot get more than four thousand dollars a year. Even if the premium is twelve thousand dollars a year, even if it's twenty thousand dollars a year, you can't get more than four thousand. Which means the costs that you pay are shooting up. And as it goes further and further into the death spiral, as the costs go higher, then more people decide not to get health insurance. Which means that only the really sick people get health insurance. Which means the cost goes even higher. The whole thing is being built to collapse. This is called a manufactured healthcare crisis. This is a manufactured crisis. They are inventing a health insurance crisis in this country. They're throwing millions of people off of insurance. They are just lighting a fuse on a ticking time bomb. That doesn't make sense. They're lighting a fuse on a fused bomb. <laughs> bomb. Actual if they bomb. pass this thing. Joel Bergens in studio. He runs Hunger Free America. He's the author of America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. He's a veteran political operative. He's a noted media commentator and personality, and he is sitting right in front of me. Welcome, Joel Berg, to The Bill Press Show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for, I guess I should say thanks for being back. I think you've, you've been on The Bill Press Show much more than myself. Uh, I've met Bill in the past, but uh, I think this may be my first appearance. Oh, is that the case? I think so. Well... Welcome to the Bill Press Show. Thank now, you. Tell me, how do you know Bill Press originally? I originally was uh, going to interview to be on his uh, you know, Senate campaign when he was thinking about running, but I, I think I may have only met him once and briefly in passing, but I certainly know of his work. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So uh, you worked on a number of campaigns across the country. Yes. I've, I've lived and worked on campaigns in Kansas, New Jersey, New York, uh, Alaska, and Maine, and Arkansas. Have you ever worked on a winning campaign? I have. I worked on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. And for all the uh, sort of retroactive uh, hating of the Clintons among some progressive circles, people forget he broke a 12-year Republican winning streak, and you can't govern Unless you win. And that's one of the points in my book. I also worked on two campaigns for Congressman Frank Pallone, a very progressive you know, Democrat from central New Jersey, when he had some tough races in the, the 90s when uh, then-Governor Jim Flora of New Jersey raised taxes. So I have worked on some winning campaigns and worked on losing campaigns, and you learn a lot from both. Learn a lot from both. Which kind do you prefer? 
I prefer winning. I prefer winning too. <laughs> we have that Winning's in common. Pretty good. Yeah, 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 yeah sure, pretty good. sure. There's the gamesmanship is po- of politics, and anyone competitive prefers winning. But when you see the stakes, after Clinton won, I was honored to work for his administration for eight years, and I came in at, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we changed the priorities entirely. We yeah. went from just aiding agribusinesses and covering up food safety scares to actually fighting hunger and fighting poverty in, in rural America. So the belief probably among some of your listeners and viewers that this stuff doesn't matter. One side's just the same as the other. That's complete, utter nonsense. <laughs> I will I will just take exception to that in one respect, which is the Bill Press Show's faithful, loyal listeners, they know this stuff matters. Yes, absolutely. It is their in-laws that are the problem. <laughs> yes, well, they know politics matters, but they may think, well, oh, the two major parties are equally bad. And in my book, I'm, I'm obviously very, very critical of the right, but I take on the left and I take on the Democratic Party in very significant ways, and I take on this notion of false equivalency. And if any of your v- listeners are still proud, they, they supported Jill Stein because, <laughs> you know, like uh, Susan Sarandon said, that Hillary was going to be far more of a warmonger than Donald uh, Trump. Uh, every, every appearance I make, I challenge any uh, Stein supporters to d- debate me, and, and they demure. You should have that debate on the new aircraft carrier that Donald Trump is ordering. Yes, and there's that. the Gerald R. Ford he'd visited, where I think he's channeling Ford's ghost to get advice about how to get your vice president to pardon you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a 12-year losing streak it's 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 I don't even want to think about what that would be like now. We are currently on a four month losing streak of presidential elections, not in terms of the popular vote. But, uh, you know, a few months ago, we lost a presidential election. That's an experience I never, ever, ever, ever want to repeat. And I think you're, you uh, wrote this book, America, We Need to Talk, before this election had happened. But it seemed to somehow foreshadow exactly the problems that the Democratic Party ran into like a hamster strapped to a moving sidewalk heading towards a buzzsaw. Yeah. Somehow, we wound up running an election campaign that was uh, premised on the idea that being extremely well qualified and having hundreds of pages of white papers about policy prescriptions was the way to, uh, you know, coast your way into the White House. And it, it didn't seem to work out exactly how we wanted. So I was wondering if you could help us figure out how to not do that again. And then specifically, we're in this battle now about healthcare. And I would like to I'd like to get a sense from you. You know, here at the Bill Press Show, our our listeners are being armed with facts and ammunition about exactly what's wrong with this terrible right wing healthcare proposal. But how to communicate about that to people that don't already agree with us is is a significant challenge. So let's let's start first things first. You know, what went wrong? How do we change it? Well, first of all. The Democrats did not communicate how they were going to help real people with real problems. Why should that matter? Well, it does matter. (laughs) And in retrospect, all these things in the campaign that we thought were a huge strategic mistake for Donald Trump, talking about Miss Universe, talking about Dr. Khan, turned out to be a huge mistake for the Democrats because every time Trump talked about that, the Democrats were knocked off telling people what they were going to do for them. So the group I run in my day job, Hunger Free America, we're a nonpartisan group. But in my free time as a private citizen, occasionally I campaign for candidates I support. And I do know Secretary Clinton a bit. And I spent a week in Reading, Pennsylvania, knocking on doors, a very low income uh, community, large Hispanic population. I met a, a woman who was of Puerto Rican uh, descent, uh, long term resident of Reading. And I said, are you going to vote? And she said, I'm not going to vote. And first I said, well, people around the world are dying you know, for the right to vote. 
didn't move her. And then I said, you're Latina. What part of Trump hating Hispanics and hating women don't you get? That didn't move her. And then I looked at her kid and said, you want your kid to be able to go to college? She said, sure, but we'll never be able to afford it. I said, well, do you know Hillary has a concrete plan to be able to get, allow your kid to go to college? And that sort of moved her. But I shouldn't have been the one first one to tell her that. <laughs> Hillary's campaign. Yeah. And so uh, in my uh, free time, it wasn't public, but I worked on a policy advisory committee to her as well. She had excellent plans and they would have mattered. They were but, great plans. But they were never communicated to the American people. Yeah. And the bottom line is it's about policy, stupid, not a wonkish definition of, of policy. But how are you going to improve real people's real lives? And a lying, fabricated message like Trump beats no message every time. And it's not just Hillary. People say, oh, she was a uniquely bad candidate. If we had someone more to the left, we would have won. There wasn't a single state where a Democrat won a Senate seat where Hillary lost. So huh. it was a broader problem with the Democratic uh, Party. And I also say that you have to communicate with people about values first. Yeah. They have to trust you first. And so progressives need to be clear that we care about families. We care about neighborhoods. We care about families. We care about faith and secular ethical traditions and the things we're fighting for to make sure people have health care will work. The other thing is when we were fighting for health care originally, we allowed the other side and both in 93 when Bill Clinton was pushing it and when Obama was pushing it, we allowed the other side to compare our proposals to perfection. When we should have compared our proposals to the status quo, yeah. the day Obamacare was proposed, a third of Americans were already getting health care through Medicaid and Medicare. And so I think the, the House left wing public option would have increased that by 10 percent. And we allowed the other side to characterize it as this massive new expansion. As you guys mentioned, now that they have a plan, it's going to be far easier to point out to people the deficiencies of it. But we've got to make sure people know we care about the areas. And I guess my main takeaway from the election, and this is a point I make throughout in the book, this debate among progressives now and among Democrats, do we care about rural white people or do we care about inner city people of color? That is a dumb ass debate. Uh, number one, it's wrong morally. If you want to lead a nation, you've got to care about everyone. And two, it's wrong politically. You need both to win. Yeah. I point out in the book, these rural white counties in swing states that have double the national poverty rate. Bill Clinton won them by 5% in 1992. Obama lost them by 20 in 08, 30 in, in 12. And Hillary lost them by 50 points. We need 50 points. 50 points. Well, first of all, you got to show up. Uh, you know, and, and second of all, you've got to communicate you have policies and plans and values that are going to benefit these folks. And the, the Democrats just haven't done that. So things that I call for, for instance, are expansion of the AmeriCorps National Service Program, which allows people to work their way through college uh, while serving the nation. I, I would love, as Senator Sanders proposes, everyone to get college for free, but I just don't see the American people supporting that. I do see them supporting a plan where everyone who's willing to serve their nation, either through military or civilian service, can pay for a college education. And that's a plan that would unite white working class people and low income people of color. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by 
telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. We're talking in this hour about the Muslim ban 2.0. I just want to frame this whole thing by going back to how all this began. This all began last December, December 7th, 2015, excuse me, two Decembers ago. There was a terrorist attack. There was a freaked out, terrible presidential candidate running. His poll numbers were sagging. He needed to change the topic of conversation. And so he came out with this moment. He came out and made this announcement. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm not supposed to barf on microphone here on the radio. It's all right. All right, here to dissect what has happened since then to figure out whether this administration ever figured out what is going on is Yasmin Tayeb. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Bill Press Show today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Is it, in fact, a Muslim ban? Kellyanne Conway had some information about it. Uh, what did she say about whether it's a Muslim ban? It's not a Muslim ban. This is not key to religion. This is key to how compromised or run by terrorists your nation is. Uh there you have it. If Kellyanne Ken- Conway says something, then it must not be true. It is indeed a Muslim ban. <laughs> this is the fulfillment of, as she pointed out, a campaign promise. Uh, let's 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 hear what she said about uh, whether this is a fulfillment of a campaign promise. It's very important that this exists at all. First, we were criticized for doing things too quickly, and the president made very clear that uh, making good on these campaign promises and keeping the country safe, being his top priority, was of an urgent concern. This is why it's unconstitutional. It's because he promised in the campaign to ban Muslims, and then he instituted this policy, and it's clearly intended to ban Muslims from entering the country. Uh, it is a Muslim ban. Uh, tell us, exa- tell us, uh, Yasmin. Yasmin is a, a terrific advocate and lobbyist who goes on Capitol Hill, talks to lawmakers, and last night led a protest outside of the White House opposing this. Can you just tell us what this policy is? So I, I think you explained it really well. I mean, regardless of what they call it and regardless of what they say its um, purpose and rationale is, I mean, it, it's, its purpose and, 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 and really um, it, it is a Muslim ban. And, and this, this new executive order that came out, the reason why we're calling it a Muslim ban 2.0 is because that's exactly what is going to to do. And as you stated, the countries that um, have been targeted on this list as saying that the citizens from these countries are going to be barred from coming to the United States, the majority of them are, in fact, Muslims. These are Muslim majority countries. And regardless of whether we removed one country from that list or not, and again, it's it's it, it just, again, goes back to the whole notion that uh, the the way that the administration chose these countries it was such a on such an arbitrary basis the fact that they removed Iraq on a whim um, and they did so mainly because again it was at the kind of request and advisement of folks at DOD saying if you're serious about you know defeating ISIS you, sh- you probably shouldn't alienate their their citizens and tell them that they're banned from coming to our country um, but you know the fact that they say this is 
done on based on national security concerns is is completely ridiculous um because again none of the citizens from those countries have ever committed a, a terror attack on US soil so and the fact that you know uh, this ban came out first then it was delayed for several weeks um you know if it was so urgent it clearly clearly wasn't that urgent <laughs> let's let's dig into that that to me is like the, the tell for this whole thing so last night the administration announced that they were banning people from six muslim majority countries from coming into the united states if you had a green card, if you're a lawful permanent resident, didn't apply to you. If you already had a visa to come to the United States, it didn't apply to you. And the ban would come into effect only after a week. I think it goes into effect on the 16th. And it's a 90-day ban. Now, what is the conceivable national security rationale for any of that? It doesn't make any sense. And not only does it not make sense, the administration itself has laid out all the reasons why it could not possibly make sense. Originally, the administration said it had the, the ban had to go into effect immediately because if they gave warning and had a, a waiting period, then all the bad people would slip into the United States during the waiting period. Now they have announced that there is a waiting period before it comes into effect. So clearly, the old argument about how they needed to do this immediately did not apply. Second thing is, why is it a 90-day... like? If there was actually some kind of threat, why would you announce that this will be lifted after 90 days? Is there some kind of policy that they can only put in place while there is a ban in effect that will take exactly 90 days to apply? No, there's no, there's, there's nothing that they can do during those 90 days that they couldn't also do if the you know, current immigration laws applied. There's absolutely no fig leaf of national security rationale for this whatsoever. The only thing this does is allow Trump to say that he checked off the box by basically you know, smacking a whole bunch of Muslim-majority nations of, of Muslims around the world. But it's not just Muslims that this affects. There's another group of people it affects. What, what group is that? Uh, refugees. Refugees. So let's talk about what this means, what the Trump administration wants to do to refugee policy. First of all, who, who are refugees to the United States? So, I mean, right now we're dealing with the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. We're talking about literally more than 65 million people globally that are displaced um and then in 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 terms of uh in terms of our refugee resettlement program i mean the us has has had a very kind of compassionate and, and tradition of of welcoming uh those most vulnerable um into into our country so and we're, when we're talking about the syrian refugee crisis and 5 million uh refugees that have been caused by um, the Syrian civil war, you know, I, I, I think that the policy that, you know, the Obama administration had and, and making sure that we did our part in opening our doors, making sure that we welcome Syrian refugees and the fact that um, the Trump administration, as you mentioned, Ben, during the campaign and now um, throughout his administration has been very clear in, in making sure that we, we shut our doors to those most vulnerable. I mean, when we're talking again about Syrian refugees, more than 80% of Syrian refugees that have been resettled in the U.S. are women and children. Women, women and children. Women and children. So um, when we hear this rhetoric from, from, from the Trump administration talking about how we're letting in terrorists, I mean, just think about what that means and think about what he's saying about folks that we're actually banning from coming to our countries. These are literally the most vulnerable uh, in our communities um, that the U.S. handpicks to even allow them to, to, to step foot into our doors. It's worth, it's worth noting, like, 
first of all, the Statue of Liberty says, bring us your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. This is the American idea, is that we are a beacon of freedom and refuge. And the United States historically has welcomed millions of, of refugees. It's one of our greatest things. And then there's also this strain of fear and anti-refugee kind of xenophobia that has popped up a couple times. In World War II, we, we rejected Jewish refugees trying to flee Nazi Germany. The St. Louis, this boat full of Jewish refugees, people a lot like uh, you know, my, my grandfather's family, um, some of whom actually were rejected from the United States and wound up in, in Argentina. Uh, that boat was turned around, and a lot of people who were on that boat, the St. Louis, uh, had to go back to Europe and were killed in the Holocaust. That is, that is, you know, the flip side of our great tradition of welcoming people. Occasionally, this 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 xenophobic beast rears up its head, and people die as a result. And this, you know, we're seeing that flare up again. The the flames of that being fanned. Um, the second thing is that our refugee program is uh, involves extreme vetting already. The process that refugees go through. Um, and as, and and uh, this includes Syrian refugees. The process they go through before they are admitted to the United States is incredibly rigorous. There's a 21-step process. It takes a year and a half. They're checked against every possible database, multiple in-person interviews, biometric screenings. And once you get through this giant process of extreme vetting, there's a brief window in which you are cleared to enter the United States. And guess what? That window will be slammed shut if there's this ban on, uh, on, uh, for 90 days on, on any refugees entering the country. Uh, it's, it's just a, a hideous process. Now, do, do you, you're, like, tell me how you ca- sort of came to, to start working on refugees and, and you know, how this resonates for you personally. Sure. So, uh, so I worked. I, I started working on this issue when I actually started at FCNL in fall of 2015. That's the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is a terrific social justice uh, group. War is not the answer. Signs you might have seen, or love thy neighbor, no exception. Signs that those come from your organization. Um, and one of you know that was really at the height of the refugee crisis, and I wanted to make sure that our organization did its part to uh, really work to advocate for admitting more Syrian refugees. And, uh, you know, you and I have worked very closely on this issue and Move On has been fantastic uh, in terms of helping us uh, start this national coalition that we're a part of now that's nearly 200 national groups fighting for um, for the rights of refugees. Uh, for me, I mean, this issue obviously is 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 a bit personal because of my own background and, and how my family um, was able to come to the United States. So, you know, I'm Iranian-American. Uh, I was born in Iran. During the Iran-Iraq war, um, we were trying to leave because my brother was about to get drafted. He was around 15 years old. Um, at that point, really, uh, they were sending children to the front lines. It was, it was incredibly distressing and um, scary for my mom. So we did everything we possibly could to come to the U.S. Um, where my father was residing. Um, very kind of similar uh, processes that Syrian refugees go through. We went to Turkey. Um, we tried to apply for kind of various visas. Um, we weren't successful. So we eventually, um, you know, had to come to the U.S. Uh, as undocumented immigrants. Um, and we were uh essentially smuggled in by two folks that had helped us that we found in Turkey. Um, so, I mean, you know, talking about this, I, I like to some folks, it's it's probably a bit shocking um, realizing that someone from Iran went through a process that 
we hear folks from, you know, Latin American countries that are fleeing um, violence or going through. But um, I mean, I mention this because there are so many families, um, American families right now with, you know, with these experiences and we we were welcomed into America with open arms. Um, we are all, you know, contributing citizens. We, you know, my family were all either lawyers or doctors. Um, so we're absolutely doing everything we can to give back. Um, but for me, this issue again is personal for that reason because uh, I was afforded the opportunity to be able to come here with with my siblings and and, and my family. I want to make sure that I do everything I can to ensure that that opportunity is still available to others as well. This is such an American story. You know, war at home and your family divided, coming to the United States, uh, and then now becoming just, you know, core parts of your communities and, and contributing and fighting for a nation that's just and, and welcoming to people. Like, I can, I, can, I can vouch personally, you do not pose a national security threat. <laughs> You're a part of what makes our national security stronger. I'm joined today at this moment in our final segment of the day by Ron Pollock, the founding executive director of Families USA, a longtime hero of mine, the former employee, full disclosure, of my wife at Families USA. She got her start in health policy right there. Uh, And uh, someone who's been intimately involved in fighting for expanding health insurance for the last 35 years. Uh, Ron, have you ever seen the United States on the precipice of ripping health insurance away from tens of millions of people uh, before, or is this a unique moment in your in your experience in health policy? Well, this is uh, unusual, if not unique. I, mean, I I can't think of any time when there was such an effort to try to take away health coverage for tens of millions of people. Now, I'm not sure that's going to happen ultimately. Mm. Uh, clearly, that's what the Republican leadership wants to do, and. Despite Donald Trump's comments about we're not going to have people lose coverage, the bill that was introduced last night uh, certainly would do that. So the next part of our conversation is about the fight. What do they need to do to make it happen? What do we need to do to stop them from making it happen? Well, uh, this you're absolutely right. There's no clarity about whether this actually will ultimately pass. Now, you know, Speaker Ryan feels that this is an existential political requirement that he get this thing passed. Um, So he's going to be hit on both sides. Um, On the right, he's being hit because uh, this does provide some tax credit subsidies. They're wholly inadequate. They're totally different than what the Affordable Care Act provides. Um, But the you know, the, what I like to say is the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. And, <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and people in the far right are, are saying there shouldn't be any subsidies. The government shouldn't be providing any of this. And they say this is a new entitlement. So he's got to deal with his right flank. Now, I don't think there's going to be a single Democrat, certainly in the Senate, and I think probably in the House as well, that's going to vote for this. Yeah. And I can say, if you were represented by a Democrat, just double check, check in with your member of Congress, make a phone call, make sure they are absolutely committed to voting against this. Because I think we can have complete Democratic unity, and that shows who we are as a Democratic Party, to have every vote go against this Absolutely. This absolutely. Now, I think the real fight is going to be in the Senate. Um, now, the uh, Republicans 
are doing this under a procedure that is a misnomer, reconciliation process. Reconciliation sounds like a friendly thing. Sounds lovely. It's, it's a way of sticking <laughs> it to you. Um, <clears throat> it avoids, <clears throat> excuse me, it avoids the necessity uh, of having to overcome a filibuster for which you need 60 votes. Um, all you need is 50 votes plus the vice president. So that's really where the greatest line of resistance is going to be. Now, there were yesterday four Republicans who are in states where Medicaid has been expanded. And they said, we can't vote for a bill that's going to jeopardize the people in our state who've gained coverage who are going to lose that coverage. My hope is there are going to be other senators who are going to feel the same way. Of course, you know, there's in, in this bill, uh, Planned Parenthood would get defunded. And I think there are some uh, senators, uh, particularly people like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. It's Maine and Alaska. Yeah, who are, I think, going to be loath to uh, defund uh, Planned Parenthood. So uh, this is a far way uh, from actually getting enacted. And we who have uh, heralded the passage of the Affordable Care Act uh, we we have been building that resistance from day one when Donald Trump was elected. I I remember uh, the staff at Families USA getting together on the 9th of November, and uh, some of the folks on our staff had tears in their eyes. And I said, you know, uh, we can't agonize. We've got to organize. And health care is going to be the first thing on the chopping block. And right away, a coalition was developed, Protect Our Care, uh, that has many organizations participating in it. And so there is significant resistance taking place to this fight. I just can't emphasize enough how much everyone listening to the show, everyone watching the show online can play a role in defending yeah. the Affordable Care Act. It is people's personal stories. And because because of the peace of mind that the Affordable Care Act gives to everyone, everyone has a personal story about how it affects their life. If you call your member of Congress, if you find a place where your senator is appearing and you show up, if you write letters to the editor and mention your senator's name, if you tell your story, you can play a role in turning this fight around. And we can make sure that uh, March 27th is just a mere footnote. It's the day when the bomb didn't go off. It's the day when the Make America Sick Again Act was not passed. I, I, I believe that we can win this thing. And boy, it'll be sweet when we see the Republicans eating crow about their attempt to dismantle the American health care system. Uh, again, Ron Pollock, our, our guest. I'm Ben Wickler, guest hosting today on The Bill Press Show. Thanks so much to our whole team, Peter Ogburn, Jamie Benson, uh, Ray Rogers, and Cyprian Boulding. You can follow us, subscribe on youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and tune in again tomorrow from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern for more Bill Press Show action. The resistance continues here on The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show.